You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No as a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is made possible by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member and you'd like to hear us more than twice a month, join our Patreon. Starting at just $2 a month, you can listen to exclusive episodes just for Patreon subscribers. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. This time, Spartacus meant business. They tell you that he fell like a gladiator, fierce and unbreakable, his head held high as he raged in battle against the legions, his warriors behind him, following his every command, their thirst for Roman blood, their skill in battle unmatched until this moment. When the legions were finished with the Gallic forces, the ground strewn with their broken bodies, the Romans found him last. His eyes were fixed on the mountain. Even in death, they could not take the sky from him. And when he went to join his people in the afterlife, they would sing his praises, toast his victories, and celebrate how he died, a warrior general who had achieved great things. They would serve him the hero's portion and anoint his head with a golden crown and a torque that told his tales. You've had your differences. Sometimes you swore he couldn't see sense or reason, but he was your brother. And if you had your way, you would have given him a burial with all the honors, one as great as such a legend deserved. But instead, the rain will weep for him, and the carrion birds will feast upon his flesh. He is gone from this world, but you remain, and every day your men feel his loss. He would have led them to victory. He would have seen that trap the Romans set for you at the Alps. It is easy for them to judge your actions, because you are still here, a mortal man, while he has passed into the halls of legend and now sits at the god's right hand. But you know the truth. His war was always a doomed one, a calculated loss. He gave his life so you could lead your people through the Alps and to true freedom. And you have failed him. You failed to cross the Alps. You escaped the Roman trap, but at such a high cost. Your Gallic warriors are gone, your Germanic troops are scattered to the winds, and your army has nowhere to go but south, back into the gaping maw of the Republic. You cannot let his death be in vain. You know what your people need, a chance to mourn together, to give meaning to all they have lost. 
you will give them a spectacle that will make them remember who they are, how far they have come, and that they still walk arm in arm with Dionysus, and that together, though you have suffered grievous losses, you will not stop until the war is won, until your people are free. You turn to your other generals, men who have barely survived their recent battles with Rome. Bring me the prisoners. We shall give him the funerary games he deserves. Let the Romans kill and die for our gods in our arena. I'm Crixus. And I'm Spartacus. And this... No, I'm Spartacus! You just said you were Crixus. But wait, could I be Gannicus instead? I'm Spartacus. And she's Crixus. And this <laughs> is Ancient History Fangirl. Two weeks ago, we left Spartacus and his rebels victorious on the slopes of Mount Vesuvius. Spartacus's army had defeated the praetor Glaber. The shepherds and herdsmen had joined his troops, and he was taming wild ponies to form an infantry. Crixus was letting his curly hair loose on the Italian countryside, just tossing it to and fro, and the ponies <laughs> were coming to him. Oh my god, I'm swooning right now. The rebels were enjoying a glorious Italian summer with just enough humidity, not too little, we don't want the air to be dry, and not too much, we don't want Crixus's glorious curly locks to be all frizzy and messy. It was just enough humidity. It was perfect, it was the perfect Italian summer. It was perfect. It was the kind of thing that, like, when you watch a movie and it flashes back to, like, this moment in your teenagehood where everything is beautiful and nothing harms you, that's what they were doing. Obviously, we're hamming this up. It wasn't quite like that. So, Crixus's hair was so on point this summer. Meanwhile, the Senate in Rome was finally starting to realize that the Spartacus problem was not going away. It was getting bigger, daily. The Senate spent their not-so-glorious Italian summer because the Senate was not having as good a summer. They were just not. Regrouping, planning exactly what they would do next to deal with their definitely not a war, but maybe possibly at this point we're going to call it a rebellion, problem. And in Spain, Sertorius, the populist leader who had rebelled against Rome and driven the Republic to war in the Mediterranean, was dead. Pompey Shark and his co-general, Metellus, were busy mopping up the mess that was Sertorius's rebellion. Listen, the teenage butcher was there to butcher. Now we have our ticking clock. Everything is in, like, countdown mode. That's right. In the autumn of 73 BC, Spartacus and his army were living their best life raiding Lucania and Campania. Food would have been ripe for the taking with lots of fruits and vegetables ready to be harvested. We assume, we assume there weren't any blights or anything going on. Things were actually going about as well as they could go for the rebel army at this point in time. But Spartacus was well aware that Rome wasn't going to let them raid and pillage forever. Their golden hour was coming to a close, and they had to be prepared for whomever Rome sent to challenge them. In the autumn of 73 BC, Rome sent a praetor named Publius Verinius. Publius Verinius. <laughs> Guys, we've had enough wine that Publius is going to kill us. <laughs> we get amused by very small things here. You know there are not enough men named Publius. Publius Verinius. <laughs> Publius Verinius was sent to deal with the Spartacus problem, and Verinius basically decided he was going to outsource this. He sent out two deputy commanders, and the first one was a man named Furious, which I just <laughs> love. His name was Furious. Every time I was typing this, I just thought it was Furious, and I was like, it's not that, Jen. It's not Furious. F-U-R-I-U-S. This man's name was actually Furious. So Verinius outsourced his little Spartacus problem. He decided he was going to outsource it first to Furious. And this did not go so well for Furious. Let's just let Plutarch break it down for us. Quote! The first day, the rebel army engaged and routed a force of 2,000 men under his deputy commander, 
Furious by name. And then came the turn of Cusinius, which is another dude that Verinius decided to outsource this to when Furious fell on his fucking motherfucking face. Anyway, so then came the turn of Cosinius, who had been sent out with a large force to advise Verinius and to share with him the responsibility of the command. Spartacus watched his movements closely and very nearly captured him as he was bathing near Salonae. So Spartacus kicked Furious's ass so easily and so thoroughly that we have actually no details about how he did this because the ancient sources are just like, well, that happened super fast. We didn't even blink. We're just not going to include the details because we didn't even know what they are. After that, Spartacus <laughs> kicked Cassinius's ass in the bath. We're only on page two. <laughs> the man who rubbed oh him in the bath turned out to be Spartacus. If you're part of the Roman aristocracy, there is a one in three chance that you might get rubbed to death in the bath. Accurate. This is almost another ancient history fangirl, man dies in a bath story. However, in this instance, Cassinius isn't dead yet. <laughs> Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> After both Cassinius and Furious covered themselves in shame, Verinius entered the fray. Verinius decided to roll his sleeves up and do shit himself for once. Allegedly. But according to Plutarch, Verinius didn't fare much better. Quote, After their battle, he, Verinius, only just managed to escape, and Spartacus immediately seized all his baggage and then pressed on hard after him and captured his camp. There was a great slaughter, and Cosinius was among those who fell. Next, Spartacus defeated the praetor himself in a number of engagements and finally captured his lictors and the very 
horse that he rode. He even took his horse right out from under him. Stone cold. So what is Plutarch telling us? After Cassinius's near-death experience in the bath, he joined Verinius's camp. Potentially, he might have actually led Spartacus's army straight to Verinius, but let's be honest, Verinius had a large force of Roman legions, so it would be hard for Spartacus and his scouts to miss it. After all, Spartacus's scouts, now made up of shepherds and herdsmen, knew this land better than anyone else, certainly better than Verinius's newly raised legions. So according to Appian, after the defeat of Verinius, Spartacus's army swelled, quote, People flocked in still greater numbers to join Spartacus. His army now numbered 70,000, and he began to manufacture weapons and gather stores. The government in Rome now dispatched the consuls with two legions. So the consuls are the highest-ranking political people in Rome. Consuls were both political leaders and military leaders, so they're basically hauling out third-string consuls who are currently in Rome as opposed to fighting any of the wars that are happening outside of the Roman boundaries. So what happens next is kind of confusing in the ancient sources. So we're going to refer to the very convenient timeline that has been created for us by Barry Strauss in the book The Spartacus War. So according to Barry Strauss's timeline, this is the point where Spartacus's army decided to spend the winter in a town called Thurai. Spartacus knew that his army needed time to actually become an army. The Romans were not going to stop. The more Spartacus defeated them, the better the generals the Romans were going to send against them. Like, basically, they were just going to send him bigger and bigger bosses until somebody defeated him. Yeah, it's like, you know, when you play a video game. Exactly. And before that happened, Spartacus needed to give his sudden influx of new recruits time to raise their skill level. And he also needed somewhere to spend the winter. Somewhere defensible, preferably a place with high walls and a place big enough to accommodate 70,000 people. So Spartacus set his eyes on the city of Thurai. Thurai was a small city, or maybe a large town, in southern Italy, kind of on the insole of the Italian boot, kind of high up there on the arch. And it had what Spartacus needed. High walls, lots of supplies to feed his army. It had access to a port, and the towns around it were easy to get to and plunder. It was also kind of at this point in time a little bit in, like, gentle decay. It also had access to mountains, and should anything go wrong, would allow Spartacus two different places for his army to melt away into, either the sea, escaping by boat, or into the mountains. It was an ideal place to spend a winter. So Spartacus and his army took the city. We don't really know how he did this. Historians suggest that he had an inside man who opened the gates and let the army slip in at night. We don't know if that's true, but we do know when the city was taken, there was much bloodshed and carnage. Plutarch, our main ancient source for the Spartacus War, paints Spartacus in a pretty decent light as a worthy foe, an intellectual even, far more Greek than barbarian. Ugh, this was Plutarch's way of saying he was articulate because Plutarch is a dick. Thracians can't be intellectual, only Greeks can. Yeah, but I wanted to stop here for a minute and look at a passage from Sallust. Sallust was a writer who lived during the time of Spartacus. He's the source that later writers like Appian and Plutarch were probably working from. Of all of them, he was probably the most accurate because he would have had access to recent eyewitnesses. And maybe he was one himself. We don't know where he was at this point in time. And this isn't to say he didn't have an axe to grind because he did. 
We're just saying he's a contemporary of the events. Yeah, and one of his axes to grind might have been that he wanted to make Crassus look bad because Crassus wasn't necessarily a popular person during this time. So he might have been aggrandizing Spartacus a little bit to make Crassus look like the villain in his story. There's that. And also, I don't know much about Salus' leanings in the later years towards things like the First Triumvirate. I haven't done that deep a dive. Anyway, so... The problem that we have with Salus' account of Spartacus is that that account has been lost to history. But a few fragments do survive, and the passage we're about to read you is one of them. It's one of the rare passages in Salus that we get about Spartacus. And this is a passage that does not appear in Appian or Plutarch, and it paints a much more brutal picture of Spartacus and his followers. And this passage is important because it shows us what it would have looked like to be a person in one of the towns that Spartacus and his army were raiding. It gives us a really rare glimpse into that perspective. Yeah, and I I just want to stress this isn't necessarily Thurai, but it's one of the other towns around it. Okay, so this was going on not just in Thurai, but in a number of towns around Thurai. So Spartacus was a Thracian, and we know that Thracians were famous mercenaries who lived off plunder and riches gained from their wars. It's nice to believe that Spartacus was above plundering. I mean, that's how I want to believe he is. That's how my Crixus with his long flowing hair and my Gannicus and my Castus are. But that doesn't seem really realistic. The reality is that plundering was the Thracian way of life. And what we're about to share with you from Salus' account of the Spartacus War is incomplete. But it shows us a different side of the mythic hero. And the way that we're going to read this, we should probably explain that, right, Jen? Yeah, so I included this... And I could have like chopped and changed bits and pieces of it to make it feel like it flowed more as we were reading it to you so that you don't have these moments of like, what's happening here? I didn't do that for a real reason. This is the contemporary source that we have to Spartacus's war. I want you to see how fragmented it is. And I want you to see the pieces that historians have filled in along the way to sort of fill in these gaps. So we're going to read it like this. Jenny is going to be the main person reading you the story. I'm going to be reading the words that are on the page that we have that have been translated from the Latin that is there in Sallust's passage. And when you hear my voice, I'm going to be reading you things that have been added. So essentially the things in brackets that either are telling you something is missing or something someone has later on down the road added to clarify a passage. Right. So there have been a lot of translators who over the years have added phrases that are not there that they think probably would have been there based on the context. These are suppositions. So we want you to see how fragmented this is and what's been added. So expect this to sound as fragmented as we read it on the page. And also just a heads up, there is some rape in this. And violence. Okay. So are you ready, Jen? I am so ready to be your fragment. Okay, so this is what happened when Spartacus and his army took over a local town around Thurai. According to Sallust, quote, Immediately the slaves, contrary to the orders of their leader, turned to raping the young girls and mothers and others. Two lines missing. Now, and tormented those who remained in a shocking way with horrible wounds, and sometimes left their mutilated bodies still half alive. Others set fire to the buildings, and many of the slaves from the district whose character inclined them to be allies, brought out the possessions which their masters had hidden or dragged out their masters themselves. Nothing was sacred or inviolable to these men who had the savagery of barbarians and the temperament of slaves. Since Spartacus could not stop these outrages, he earnestly begged them to forestall the news of what they had done and quickly three lines missing that they would earn the hatred of the inhabitants who had been cruelly attacked and slaughtered. Heavy, mostly. Dot, dot, dot. After staying there for that day. And the following. Night, 
with the number of slaves in his army, now doubled, he moved camp at first light and halted in a fairly wide plain where he saw that the farmers had come out of their buildings. By that time, the autumn crops were already ripe in the fields. But then, it was already fully daytime, the residents learned from their fleeing neighbors that the slaves were heading in their direction and hurried away to the nearby mountains with all their families. So there's a lot of dehumanization here from Salas. Like, you definitely get the, like, oh, they had the mindset of barbarian slaves. And it's impossible to read this quote and not be angry at the person who wrote it for that stuff. But this quote is one of the few that we've chosen to include that shows the point of view of just an ordinary person who might live in one of these towns that Spartacus is sacking and taking over. So, yeah, it really sucked to be a common person during the Spartacus War. This quote also shows us that Spartacus was starting to lose control of his men. According to Sallust, he ordered his people not to rape and pillage, but he wasn't able to contain them. This hints that by this point, Spartacus's leadership was fragile, to say the least. Warriors serving under him had their own agenda and their own feelings about what justice they wanted to mete out to the Roman people. In the historical novel that I am constantly writing about Spartacus, I like to imagine that he would have relied heavily on his priestess of propaganda, the Thracian lady, rolling her out before his army to speak of her visions from Dionysus, visions that involved an army unified under one moral leader, Spartacus, of how united together under Spartacus's leadership they could overthrow the might of Rome. But none of the sources tell us this. But given how clever Spartacus was, how beloved Dionysus was across many tribes and cultures, it seems very likely that for a long time, worship and words of prophecy from the Thracian lady helped Spartacus keep control over his rebel army, if she was still in that army, if she was still alive, if she ever existed in the first place. But here's the thing. If she had this power, if he had this propaganda priestess, everything at this point in time was changing. Here's what happened in the region around Thurai after the raping, pillaging, and killing according to Appian. Quote, Spartacus seized the mountains around Thurii, together with the town itself, and then prevented traders bringing in gold and silver, barred his own men from acquiring any, and bought exclusively iron and bronze at good prices, without harming those who brought them. As a result, they had plenty of raw material and were well-equipped and made frequent raiding expeditions. They again confronted the Romans in battle, defeated them, and on that occasion, too, returned to camp laden with booty. So the rebels now had a base camp. They had a place to wait out the winter, to train up their soldiers, to get new weapons made, and to regroup, to actually deal with traitors in a peaceful manner. And this was super important to Spartacus. He wanted to open up supply lines so that he could count on getting the things he needed for his army without having to plunder all the time. Because if his people were going to have a chance at creating a life for themselves, they had to be seen as people, and they had to be respected by the Romans. They also had to be able to trade and to forge relationships with suppliers, which means not killing everybody that they saw on site. Baseline. They had to teach the Romans not just to fear them, but to respect them. This was no small task, and it would be impossible if they kept killing people who weren't combatants, which is why, when you look at that passage from Sallust, you see Spartacus pleading with his men not to pillage and kill indiscriminately in these towns that they're taking. And look, if you're gonna pillage, try to keep the word from getting out so people don't think we're just psycho murderers. 
He didn't want the Romans to think of them that way. He wanted the Romans to think of them as a respectable pseudo-state of people that they had to negotiate with on an equal playing field. Yeah, and they undermine it when they are more concerned with gold than with actually equipping their army. Like, what Spartacus is doing here is next level. It's saying, okay, now all of my people are going to be armed with the same weapons so that they're going to go out and have the same chance when they're taking on the Roman legions. Like, it's not just going to be the hand-picked warriors who have the best stuff. Everyone is going to have good stuff. He's also concerning himself with food, with stuff that the non-combatants need. So he's putting all of that ahead of gold and plunder and stuff like that. But not everyone who followed Spartacus agreed with these tactics. Many of his followers did not understand why they had to give up their gold and plunder and their right to plunder and why everything had to be communal because there are a lot of people in Spartacus's army, you know, Thracians, Gauls, Germans, Goths, who came from warrior cultures. And in a lot of these cultures, individual warriors built up strength, status, and renown through earning their own plunder. Absolutely. And that was hugely important to them. They were being told that they couldn't look to their own glory. They had to look to the benefit of the many. But the many aren't out there risking their life. The warriors are. The warriors deserve the better portions. Yeah, it's all about who gets the hero's portion in terms of gold and bling and stuff. Absolutely. So during that winter, Spartacus probably looked around and saw how many women, children, and other non-combatants followed him. People who just wanted a chance at freedom. He wanted to get these people out of Italy and take them over the Alps, where they could return to their own tribes in Gaul or Germania or Thrace, or just make a new start out from under the thumb of Rome. For him, the end game wasn't taking on Rome and sacking the city. It was returning to home and freedom. At least, that's what the ancient sources tell us. Is that what the ancient sources tell us? Well, that's what they posit. Plutarch has a little bit of a fanboy crush on Spartacus. And he's making some suppositions, right? We don't actually know what was in Spartacus's head. And there are a lot of things that Spartacus does in the ancient sources that are mysterious. We don't know why he made these choices. We don't know Spartacus's endgame. We don't even know what his real name is. So how could we possibly know what his endgame was? If Spartacus was a Thracian and if he was a Maedi, the Maedi were nomadic. So they didn't have one homeland. They tended to follow their strong leader who led them to different places. And to me, this makes sense as to how Spartacus viewed the world because he's looking at the people around him and he's saying, okay, I guess I've managed to become their tribal leader and they're all looking after me to give them a place of safety. Because as we talked about when we talked about Thracians, the land in Thrace was hotly fought over all of the time. Everyone wanted the rich minerals you could get in Thrace and you had to be a strong warrior to keep your land, your people together. If Spartacus came from the Maedi, then it, it kind of makes sense that that would be his outlook. I need to keep all of my people together and get them to the next place of safety. But anyway, I want to get back to Spartacus's generals because they didn't see things the same way he did. Crixus and the Gallic forces wanted to kill as many Romans as possible, potentially. To them, it was more honorable to die in battle, taking on a foe who had wrought so much pain and degradation on their people, than it was to try to escape back to their homelands. Yet again, this is another supposition. But we are making this educated guess based on what we know about the Gauls and the Celts and their outlook. And we're also making this based on the idea that they were upset about not being able to have their gold in their hero's portion. This would have mattered to them. So 
The Germanic forces, co-commanded by Castus and Gannicus, probably felt the same way as the Gauls. We're just guessing, but it seems likely. We can guess that they were spoiling for a good fight, and after a winter of regrouping and planning, these two generals, Gannicus and Castus, were at a crossroads. They could either follow Spartacus's leadership, which we're guessing that that leadership cautioned against fighting Rome outright, or they could follow Crixus and march into war. It's at this point, at the beginning of 72 BC, that Spartacus's army splintered. Crixus refused to go over the Alps. His Gallic force of 3,000 to 30,000 men, I've seen both of those numbers in different sources, I don't know, were proud warriors, strong fighters whose loss would have hurt Spartacus badly. And this is a historical mystery. Historians don't know why Crixus split off from Spartacus. We're making the supposition that Spartacus wanted to keep everyone safe and get over the Alps and out of Italy, whereas Crixus wanted to fight on for glory and kill as many Romans as possible. That's a supposition that some historians make. There are other possibilities for why Crixus broke off. Oh, there are. And we're going to talk about that in a little while. Yeah, we'll get to it. So... Anyway, at this point, Crixus has splintered off from Spartacus, taking a large contingent of his army, the Gallic forces, with him, which really would have hurt Spartacus. Nevertheless, Spartacus decided to head north to make for the Alps without Crixus. And we're assuming that he wanted to get his people over the mountains as soon as it was passable, and while Rome was still distracted with the wars in Spain and Pontus, if Spartacus wanted to get his people out of Italy, it was now or never. So, the ancient sources are unclear about a lot of things, and one of the things that they're unclear about is what Gannicus, Castus, and their German followers decided to do around this time. But we think it's likely they either decided to follow Spartacus and got separated, or maybe waffled and flailed about who to follow and then decided to maybe go off on their own, based on what happens in the quote we're about to read you, or maybe they just got separated from Spartacus in the upcoming battle. We don't know. It's a little unclear. Yeah, they could have also been Spartacus's rear guard. We just don't know. Yeah, they could have been tactically behind coming up with the rear and protecting the baggage lines and the non-combatants who are moving slowly. There's a lot we don't know. But either way, what we're about to tell you is a story in which the Germanic forces led by Gannicus and Castus got separated from Spartacus. Hello, everyone. Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. So the Senate, meanwhile, was horrified about what happened in Thurai, and they decided to get serious about this Spartacus situation that they still won't call a war. According to Plutarch, quote, the situation had become dangerous enough to inspire real fear, and as a result, both consuls were sent out to deal with what was considered a major war and a most difficult one to fight. One of the consuls, Gellius, fell suddenly upon and entirely destroyed the German contingent of Spartacus's troops, who, in their insolent self-confidence, had marched off on their own and lost contact with the rest. But when Lentulus, the other consul, had surrounded the enemy with large forces, Spartacus turned the attack, joined battle, 
defeated the generals of Lentulus and captured all their equipment. There's definitely a strong through line of Spartacus taking your stuff. Let's get back to Plutarch. Spartacus then pushed on towards the Alps and was confronted by Cassius, the governor of Cisalpine Gaul, with an army of 10,000 men. In the battle that followed, Cassius was defeated and after losing many of his men, only just managed to escape with his own life. So let's break this down for a second. Crixus and Spartacus separated. Crixus is down in the south of Italy now. Spartacus and the Germanic troops marched north to the Alps. And somehow Spartacus and the Germans, led by Castus and Gannicus, got separated. And then the Roman consul Gallius wiped them out. Both Gannicus and Castus survived this battle, by the way. Meanwhile, the other consul, Lentulus, attacked Spartacus's main force, and Spartacus was able to turn the tide of battle, defeat Lentulus, and capture his equipment. And we don't know how many losses Spartacus suffered here, but we do know that he was victorious. So next, as Spartacus and his remaining followers moved north towards the Alps, the governor of Cisalpine Gaul joined the fray. And before we started researching Spartacus, We always kind of wondered why he didn't just march over the Alps as he had originally planned. And this is a big historical mystery. Historians don't know. Like, this is one of the things Spartacus does in the ancient sources that baffles historians. Like, why did he get so close to the Alps and then turn around? We don't know. But this might have been a reason. Yeah, Spartacus had lost a lot of his fighting troops by now. How many, we're not totally sure. But his Germans were just wiped out, and the Gauls had defected with Crixus. His army would be down to shepherds, non-combatants, and whoever else was following him. And it's possible there were more battles waiting for him in the Alps, either more Roman legions or unfriendly tribes. And the Alps crossing would not have been easy. We're talking late winter, early spring here. There would have been armed resistance and the terrain was massively difficult. Probably places were still impassable. The first Roman road through the Alps, the Via Claudia Augusta, was constructed 57 years after the Spartacus Rebellion. There was no easy way through, and the region would have been populated with tribes, some friendly but others not so friendly, with his army's strength depleted. Spartacus may have felt that the Alps were a no-go zone after this, but we don't know because nobody actually knows. But we're going to tell you another story that might have something to do with the decision Spartacus made. So while Spartacus was moving north, Crixus and his forces were raiding the Italian countryside. They had stayed in southern Italy, and we think that they had their eyes fixed on sacking Rome. But Crixus was not the tactician that Spartacus was, and his army, while filled with strong warriors, was no match for the Roman army without Spartacus's tactical mind. And I feel like here is a good place to mention that one historical theory is that Crixus left Spartacus because his goals were different than Spartacus's goals, and he just wanted to kick Roman ass while Spartacus wanted to go over the Alps and bring his people to freedom. Or... And this is the big or. This might have been a strategic split that Spartacus and Crixus agreed on together. Because here's the thing. Spartacus carried the bulk of the non-combatants and people who weren't likely able to defend themselves that he was trying to get across the Alps. And Crixus had these warriors. And it's possible that Crixus and his army of Gauls, of strong, fighting, honor-bound people, were the ruse to let Spartacus's army escape. Their goal might have been to draw Roman fire so Spartacus could take the non-combatants out of Italy. That's the idea that I absolutely love. It's why it's in the cold open, but we don't know. We don't know why anyone did anything here. All we have is what they did. So Crixus at this point is in the Roman countryside, raiding and pillaging and kicking up trouble. And the Romans sent troops after Crixus and defeated him at Mount Gargano. 
which sounds like Mount Gargamel, but it's not. It's Mount Gargano. The Romans sent troops after Crixus, and they defeated him at Mount Gargano, not Gargamel, Gargano, which was about 226 miles east of Rome, which is on the other side of the peninsula. It's not that close. Crixus, gladiator, general, rebel, and brother-in-arms of Spartacus, died in battle in the shadow of the mountain. Spartacus heard the news of Crixus's defeat just as he was realizing the path through the Alps was shut to his army, we're assuming. And Appian tells us that, quote, In the aftermath, they retreated in confusion, while Spartacus first sacrificing 300 Roman prisoners to Crixus. So this sounds like a throwaway fact, but actually it's not. Yeah, Appian just kind of tosses it out there, and it's kind of confusing. He does. Like, you're like, what did I just read? But what Appian is telling us is that Spartacus threw funerary games for Crixus that involved the sacrifice of 300 Roman prisoners. We don't know exactly who these prisoners would have been, but it's likely many of them were Roman soldiers, possibly from Cassius's defeated army, and possibly high-ranking soldiers. Spartacus was a Thracian, and as we discussed in Thracian's Shoot the Messenger and Heart of Ares, as well as How to Train Your Gladiator, funerary rites were incredibly important to Thracians. They were also important to Gauls. In How to Train Your Gladiator, we even put on our tinfoil hats and posited that maybe Thracians were the first people to throw gladiatorial-style funerary games for their dead in the Mediterranean. It's probably wrong, but we enjoyed it while we said it. So, Spartacus and Crixus were gladiators, men who were forced to fight for the honor of dead Romans. In the Spartacus War, Barry Strauss explains that the 300 Roman prisoners sacrificed to Crixus's memory were likely forced to enact a crude form of gladiatorial combat. This time, the Romans entered the homemade arena for the honor and amusement of the gladiators and ex-slaves. This time, it was Roman blood that was to be spilt in the honor of the gods of Thrace, of Gaul, of Syria, of northern Africa, of Germania. After the funeral games, something had to have changed in Spartacus. Suddenly, he didn't want to take his people to safety. Now, he was determined to march south. According to Appian, quote, Spartacus made for Rome with 120 foot soldiers who may have actually been non-combatants, I don't know. After burning the useless equipment and putting all the prisoners to death and slaughtering the draft animals to free himself of all encumbrances, and although a large number of deserters approached him, he refused to accept any of them. This time, Spartacus meant business. When news of these gladiatorial games that Spartacus threw for Crixus reached the Roman Senate, they were furious. Spartacus had once again made a mockery of their generals. He had thrown his own gladiatorial games for the amusement of slaves, shepherds, women, and brigands. He had forced Roman soldiers to fight against each other and denied them a noble death. This was more than a case of honor being at stake. This was more than an unruly rebellion. This was an all-out war on the Italian peninsula. And it was a war they were losing. Because now, Spartacus was marching straight toward their city with vengeance on his mind. But Pompey and Metellus still weren't back from their campaigns in Spain. And the Senate had used up all their other generals with military experience. They now had little choice but to turn to a man whose resources were almost limitless. A man who reeked of new money. A man who would do anything to make a name for himself, including put down a slave revolt. That man 
was Marcus Licinius Crassus. Nobody asked for more Crassus, Jen. God, you're getting a whole nother episode that's just going to be about Crassus and Spartacus. I'm sorry. So that's it for this week. We will see you guys in two weeks when we continue and conclude the epic story of Spartacus. Nobody asked for more Crassus, and I'm sorry, he's going to appear in the next episode. He's a young, fierce Crassus. I mean, young. I mean, he's probably in his 40s at this point in time with a name to make for himself. Also, we just want to smack him. Nobody asked for more Crassus, but next episode, we're going to be serving up some more Crassus. So get ready. So if you miss us in the meantime, please visit us on social. We are at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter, at Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook and Instagram. Say hello to us. And also check out our Patreon for as little as $2 a month, although we definitely appreciate it if you want to pledge more. You get access to some exclusive episodes. We've got a whole bunch of mini-sodes up on our Patreon. Yeah, we probably will have about 13 episodes up there by now, depending on when this drops. And they are great episodes. There's also a video of us if you ever wanted to see our faces talking at the Intelligent Speech Conference. You can see our faces. That is a fact. (laughs) But yes, so for as little as $2, you can become a patron. You can get access to topics ranging from that time Pompey decided to clear up the Mediterranean pirate problem in just a month or the pirate queen Tuda. There's a lot of pirate-themed episodes. There's also the Yule Cat, which is one of my favorites. There's Julius Caesar commenting on various movies. He does. Julius Caesar has opinions. He also comments on the movie of Spartacus, the uh, 1960s one. It's a great listen. And we always bring new content to our patrons once a month. If you want to hear us more than once every two weeks, then join our Patreon. And if you're not that into Patreon, but you'd still like to help, check out our website. So you can go to ancienthistoryfangirl.com where we have a Ko-Fi account, which is a website where you can just make a donation on a one-time basis to help us keep the lights on over here. Or you could check out our merch. We also have a link to that on our website, and we've got some awesome merch. And if you are not able to support us financially, which we totally understand, it's, you know, like totally understandable, give us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. That is free, and we deeply appreciate it. Yeah, and if you don't do ratings and reviews, shout us out to your friends and anyone else you think might be interested in the wild and wacky and fascinating stories from the ancient world. Thank you all for listening. We couldn't do this without you. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.